This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Let's go to God and ask Him to help us to understand His Word. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that you'll help us this Good Friday to really dig deep into your Word to us so that we may understand the full impact of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. What percentage of people will die in their lifetime? Okay, what percentage of people will die in their lifetime? It's a hundred percent. Everyone will die in their lifetime. Death is normal, but death is also very sad. And that's why people will say to you, happy birthday, but never say happy funeral. Because happy funeral is an oxymoron, right? It's putting two words together that don't fit together. It's like saying black, white, wet, dry, happy funeral. You never go to a funeral with a big smile, bringing a nicely colored wrapped present, wearing a bright red shirt, because funerals are not happy occasions. And funerals are even more sad when they happen to people before their time. So a few years ago, my grandfather died and he was 95 years old. He had four, grand, four children and uh, 11 grandchildren, of which I was one. And it was quite sad, but it wasn't that sad because at least we were comforted with the fact that he lived a very full life. But yeah, I remember another colleague of mine telling me of how at work uh, one day, a, a woman died next to her at the desk. And she was only in her 30s and she'd just given birth to a young baby. And for my friend, it was a terrible tragedy and it was a really sad funeral because this woman died really young and it seemed like her whole life was ahead of her. Well, Jesus died in his 30s. His life seemingly cut short and cut short not by disease, illness or accident, but killed by execution by the government of his day. So by all accounts, really, the death of Jesus should be a great sadness, a terrible tragedy. A man who died before his time in tragic circumstances, a life cut short. But yet here we are, 2,000 years later, on arguably one of the most important days of celebration for Christians. We call it Good Friday. But how can you really call it good and how can we really call and celebrate it when it's really about the death and the funeral of a man who seemed to die before his time under the most shameful and tragic circumstances? Well, we begin today by looking at Matthew chapter 16, which you did for your responsive reading. And in Matthew chapter 16, it's considered one of the most pivotal points in the book of Matthew. Oh, is it up here? Yep. It's one of the most pivotal points in the book of Matthew because for the very first time, someone recognizes Jesus for who he is. So when Jesus was came to the region of, the, of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter, who was the leader among the disciples, answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, chapter 16 of the book of Matthew 
is really important because for the very first time, Jesus is recognized for who he really is. The Christ, the Son of the living God. And both of these titles are very special and unique titles. And really, they are titles given uh, to only one person in history because the idea of Christ is a once-in-history person. You can have many kings, many princes, many presidents, many prime ministers, but you can only have one Christ in history. Because Christ literally means the forever king, the eternal king. And there can only be one eternal and one forever king. So when Peter calls Jesus the Christ, it is a very super big deal. But Peter goes beyond that. He says that Jesus is the son of the living God. Now, we're not exactly sure what Peter had in mind or whether he had the full import of what he was saying here. But at the very least, he was saying that Jesus somehow has a special relationship with God, that he had the qualities of God, that he was divine in himself. Now, Peter here is not high on drugs or he's not dreaming. And there is a reason why this confession only comes after 16 chapters of Matthew. Because this confession of Jesus comes after Peter and the disciples had heard the voice from heaven at Jesus' baptism say, You are my son, in whom I am well pleased. After they had been struck by the wisdom and the power of Jesus' preaching, where they had seen Jesus heal every type of disease, where the mute could speak, the deaf could hear, the blind could see, where they saw Jesus feed 5,000 people with two loaves and five small fish, and they had seen Jesus walking on water. See, I like watching TV shows. I'm sure many of you have heard of Sherlock Holmes. But before Sherlock Holmes the movie, uh, there was Sherlock Holmes the books, right? And one of the most famous quotes of Sherlock Holmes is this quote. And I'm sure some of you have heard of it. He says, How often have I said to you, this is, uh, he's uh, speaking, right, that when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. So the disciples and Peter have spent 16 chapters of Matthew eliminating the impossible, and they are left with the improbable truth that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal King, and the Son of the living God. Now, if I was Jesus, I'd be like, oh, this is really great, right? Finally, finally, someone recognizes me for who I really am. And this is where we really get down to business, you know, because they can get down to their Facebook or their Twitter or their WhatsApp, and they can start telling everybody that I'm really the Christ and really the Son of the living God. But what does Jesus say instead? Well, in the very next verse, in verse 20, he warns his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Now, that's such a surprise, right? Because this is the complete opposite of what I would do, what probably you would do too. What is the point of walking on water? What is the point of feeding the 5,000 of two loaves and five fish? What is the point of all this healing if you don't want anybody to know? So why doesn't Jesus want the disciples to tell anybody that he is the Christ? Well, in the very next verse, we get the reason, right? Because in verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. 
Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. So we see why Jesus didn't want the disciples telling people that he was the Christ. Because the disciples' idea of what the Christ came to do was very different from what he came to do as the Christ. So I remember Mike Rater a few weeks ago came to speak to us and I was really struck by his illustration. You know, I think Mike is the king of illustrations when it comes to preachers. He comes up with the best illustration, so I think we must steal his illustration again. And he said that, you know, the US presidential election, what whenever people come for election, they always have a slogan, a mission that they want to undertake. And he said, what was Obama's mission? Remember what Obama's mission was? Well, he didn't have any illustrations, so I'm one up on Michael, right? So Obama's slogan was hope, or yes, we can. Uh, Hillary Clinton, her slogan was stronger, together. And the Donald, the Trump, his slogan was to make America great again. But Jesus' mission, his slogan, was very, very different from Hillary, Donald, or Obama. It was to go to Jerusalem to suffer, to die, and to rise again. And for Peter and his disciples, they wanted no part to play in this mission or this slogan. Because campaign slogans are meant to be uplifting, inspiring, powerful. But Jesus' slogan is definitely very depressing. But Jesus confirms his program, his mission, again and again and again. In Matthew chapter 17, in the very next chapter, when they came to Galilee, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. Again, in Matthew chapter 20, Now as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests, the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day he will be raised to life. In Matthew chapter 26, when Jesus finished saying these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. It's hard to imagine the mission and the slogan of Jesus as the most powerful man in history. It's a bit like you know, Obama saying that his mission for his presidential campaign was to die in the electric chair. Or for, for Hillary Clinton to say she wanted to be hanged at the gallows. Or for <clears throat> President Trump to say that the mission of his presidential uh, campaign was to die by lethal injection. But this is what Jesus is saying. And he says repeatedly again and again, even though the disciples don't really understand. And I want you to notice something about the language that Jesus uses. Because the language that Jesus uses shows us that Jesus is not some sort of lunatic, crazy person. We really know he's a very sane person. But the, the way he uses his language shows us that there's a certain timetable a certain plan that he is following. So come back again to the very first statement that he makes to the disciples. Look at what it says there. He says, uh, oh, next one. He says, he must go to Jerusalem and he must be killed. Again, in the 
other statements that he makes, he says he will go to Jerusalem and he will be killed. Now, when Jesus says this, it shows that he, he, he is not a man to be denied, right? But he's not only not a man to be denied, but what we are seeing here is it's almost as if Jesus is following a plan, a, a timetable to his death. So that when Jesus goes to the cross in Jerusalem on Good Friday, it is not a day earlier or a day later. See, because it is according to God's plan, Jesus didn't die before his time, but Jesus died at just the right time. Now, I think one of the most timetable efficient people that I've ever met, the most clockwork efficiency people I've ever met, are the Swiss people. I remember when I went to visit my uncle in Zurich, I was so shocked because we wanted to see this castle, which was like really far out of Zurich. And we went to the train station. And we asked the train station person, how do we get there? And they said, okay, if you catch this train, the train will come and leave and depart at 9.32. And then you will walk on this journey from the train station to the ferry terminal. It will take you exactly seven minutes. And then when you get there, the ferry will depart at exactly 10.06. And sure enough, we followed the instructions exactly. And it was exactly like the, the person at the, at the train station said, you know, exactly the train would leave at this time. You walk exactly, it takes this long. And the ferry left just at that time. Well, Jesus is clockwork efficiency beyond that, right? Because through the whole course of his life, and indeed before his life in history, God had a plan for the footsteps of Jesus to end at the cross on Good Friday 2,000 years ago. That's why Jesus says that he must die, and that he will die, and two days later, after the Passover, he will die. Now, if Jesus is on a mission to die and he's on God's timetable, why is it that he has to die? Why does he have to go to the cross? Why does God plan such a, a timetable for his own son? Now, I want you to think for a moment of what you think are the most momentous achievements in history. So think of what the greatest, most momentous acts in history are. What do you think? Maybe it's the invention of fire, or the invention of the wheel, or invention of nuclear power, or antibiotics, air conditioning. Who knows, right, what is the greatest invention in history? But when we come to the cross 2,000 years ago, the Bible tells us that that is the, the most significant achievement in history, the greatest act in history. Now, why is that? Because of the meaning and the purpose of Jesus going to the cross. Jesus, following God's timetable, doesn't go to the cross for fun, right? There's a reason to it. And what is that reason? Why is it so important that he has to get there? Well, in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus gives the reason to his disciples. The disciples are arguing among themselves about who is going to be the greatest. And Jesus says, when the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers who wanted to be greater than them. And Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, 
And whoever wants to be the first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Now this word ransom captures the meaning of the cross. The cross is Jesus giving his life as a ransom for many. Now when you think of the word ransom, what do you think of? What is the picture, the visual picture in your mind? We think of a kidnap. We think of someone in the Philippines who's, you know, kidnapped and, and, and they want money in return. Or you think of someone, some rich person who's been kidnapped by criminals and you need a ransom to pay to set them free. Now, the word here for ransom literally is the word uh, payment. And in the ancient world, I think if they saw this word ransom, they wouldn't really think so much about kidnapping, but they would think of slavery. But slavery and kidnapping, well, they're kind of like the same thing like, in many ways, right? Because in both of them, there is the idea of people who are powerless, people who are in bondage, in a very bad situation that they can't break free from. Okay, so slavery and kidnapping are real situations of powerlessness where you need someone from the outside to pay a ransom to set you free or to pay a payment to set you free. Now when Jesus says here that he gives his life at the cross as a ransom for many, he's not speaking of kidnapped victims and he's not speaking of people in slavery. He's talking about you and he's talking about me. He's talking about every person that ever walked on earth. All of us are in bondage in a state of powerlessness and we are under the power of sin. Okay? It's not as if, you know, we're talking about we're powerless because we get bad marks at school or powerless because we're not happy with our careers or we don't earn enough money or we're in unhappy relationships. But the powerlessness here is the powerlessness of the power of sin and the consequences of sin. In the Bible story, from the very first chapter of the Bible to the moment of the cross, all of that is a picture of man's powerlessness to sin and the consequences of sin. From the moment of the first chapters of the book of uh, Genesis, when Adam and Eve come into the picture, man and woman are powerless to sin. Adam and Eve are powerless to sin. Noah and his family are powerless to sin. Adam, Abraham and his family are powerless to sin. Moses was powerless to sin. Israel and 12 tribes, King David, were all powerless before sin. In fact, when you look at the Bible, from the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, to the time of Jesus, it is a catalogue and record of every person under the bondage of sin and its consequences. So I began today's sermon by asking, what percentage of people will die in their lifetime? And we said, everyone, right? 100% of people will die in their lifetime. The Bible actually tells us that death is a consequence of sin. And because we all die, all of us are under the power and consequence of sin. Now, it would be bad enough if it was, if it was just death, right? I guess we could sort of say, well, if we just die, well, that's not so bad, I suppose, you know. We just die and that's it. But the consequences of sin do not end in death because the Bible tells us that there are 
eternal and everlasting consequences to sin, where we are judged eternally for sin. And when we realize the universality of sin and the eternal consequences of sin, then we realize why Good Friday is called good. Because it is the most momentous day in history, because it is greater than the invention of fire or the wheel or antibiotics or nuclear power. Because on Good Friday, Jesus did something which nobody could. He was a ransom to set us free from sin and its consequences. Now I think that that concept of being set free from the bondage of sin is almost too big for our minds. And God realizes that it's too big for our minds. And that's why later on in his ministry, just before he went to the cross, the night before he went to the cross, Jesus explained to them what ransom meant, but he gave them a visual representation of what ransom meant. So the occasion is the Passover meal. And the Passover meal was one of the most important meals in the Jewish calendar, right? It was like the, it was like Chinese New Year dinner for the Jews, but except a lot bigger than that. Because it celebrated and remembered how they were set free from the bondage of slavery under Egypt many thousands of years ago. And it, the Passover meal remembered the last miracle of God which set them free. Because God had done a series of miracles to set Israel free from Egypt. And the last miracle was the greatest because what had happened was he brought an angel to kill the firstborn of all the Egyptians and therefore set Israel free from Egypt once and for all. The Jews were told the night before the angel came that they had to slaughter a lamb and paint on their door, the top of the door and the side of the doors, the blood of the lamb. So when the angel of death came, it would see the blood and pass over that household and move on to another household. So that's why it's called the Passover, right? Because the angel of death passes over that house. And that's what the Passover meal celebrated. The passing over of their firstborn so that they would live and be set free. So here they are celebrating the Passover meal. And in Matthew chapter 26, it records for us what Jesus says. Jesus said, as he's with his uh, um, uh, disciples, while they were eating, Jesus took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And here we see the ransom idea in a visual form. Jesus is the ransom because he is the Passover lamb. He is the ultimate Passover lamb. He gives his body as a substitute so that many people will be forgiven their sins and judgment will pass over them. And that's what's happening at the cross the very next day. He gives of his blood, he gives of his body as a substitute so that judgment will pass over people because he's paid the ransom to set people free. Now I remember when I was very young, my parents gave me a, uh, I don't see this anymore, they gave me a scientific set. It was like this big, huge thing. 
And there are all these little chemicals inside and, and magnifying classes and, and, and things like that. And I think there are great hopes that maybe one day I'll become a great scientist. Right? But I'm just a pastor now. So anyway, I used to find it very interesting because you know some of the chemicals would burn very brightly and, and you know, and I, I don't know whether I nearly set the house on fire. But the one thing I really liked was the magnifying glass. Because I'm sure that they wanted me to use the magnifying glass, you know, to maybe get leaves and look at the leaf and see all the complex structures and whatnot. But I actually used the magnifying glass and I went out to kill ants. And I thought, no, this is the greatest invention ever. So, you know, the sun will come out. And then you, you know, we had this ant nest at the back of my house. So I'll just get the, the magnifying glass and magnify and, and, and it'll be amazing how much heat could be generated, you know, like the ant would sort of go, psk, right? And I think that actually, in, in a very strange way, the magnifying glass is almost like a picture of the cross. Because at the cross, all of the anger, all of the judgment, and all the wrath, which was meant for all of us, gets focused into one person at the cross, and that's Jesus Christ. At the cross, all of our sins in the past, in the present, in the future, all get focused on Jesus. And He pays with His life, the Son of God, the Christ, as a ransom for us to set us free from its consequences. See, Good Friday is actually a day of celebration because it is a day where Jesus died not before His time, but at the right time, at the perfect time. He didn't die in tragic circumstances. He died in glorious circumstances. Because when he died, he took away the curse and the punishment of sin for us. I wonder whether you've ever been in a situation where you've really been powerless. Have you really been in a situation where you've ever been powerless? A friend of uh, my wife, Cheryl, uh, she's a Malaysian. She's now migrated and works in, in, in New York. And uh, we met up with her for dinner many, many years ago. And she was telling us about how when she was working in New York one day, an ex-colleague of hers came back to work. But he was taking something back into the office which was highly illegal. And that was a gun. And with that gun, this guy who was obviously very unhappy that he had been sacked from his work, held hostage her whole office in New York. Right, apparently it was a very big thing, it was in the newspaper or whatever. And she said it was the most terrifying moment of her life to be held hostage by this ex-colleague in work. And that's what powerlessness is, isn't it? Because you have no power. You, you know, you, you really don't have any power at all. A person has a gun there, you know, obviously very unhappy, um, and you don't know what's going to happen next. And I think for her, she said that the best moment was when she could actually be set free. When, when obviously the hostage situation was resolved and the office workers could leave. I think that when we realize how powerless we are before sin and the consequences of sin, and we realize just how over the whole scope of history, mankind, humanity, men and women have been powerless before sin, then we will be able to appreciate just how good Good Friday is. Because when Jesus went to the cross, once and for all, we were able to be set free from the power of sin 
and its eternal consequences. So I hope that today as we celebrate Good Friday, that it's not just a day like I was listening on the radio yesterday for painting uh, eggs or eating chocolate Easter eggs, but it is so much more than that. It is actually remembering how in God's timetable, Jesus Christ went on the cross to die for the forgiveness of our sins as a ransom for us so that we could be set free from the power and the consequences of sin once and for all. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we really want to commit to you ourselves and confess that in so many ways we lack the full appreciation to celebrate what Jesus Christ did on that cross 2,000 years ago. That because of our complacency, because of our own comfort, we don't see the powerlessness of ourselves before sin and its consequences. But dear Father, we pray that today you may open our eyes so we may see afresh just what Jesus has done for us, to see our helplessness and hopelessness, and to really understand that Jesus has bought for us the forgiveness of sins once and for all. That on the cross, it was like a magnifying glass which drew all of this judgment meant for us and put it on Jesus instead. And we pray that as we appreciate Jesus all the more, we would come to him in faith and trust and accept this gift of his ransom. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.